Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Our guest today is Jimmy Wright. Jimmy is co-founder and president of Launch Capital Partners based in, well, if you're from there like I am, we would say Louisville, Kentucky, or we can say Louisville, Kentucky for everybody else. Growing out of years of conversation about business, ministry, and the Christian life, Launch Capital was founded as a viable marketplace response to ministry opportunities presented by the global migration crisis. Since 2015, Launch has grown into an ecosystem that includes real estate, cleaning services, and a nonprofit. All of it begs the question, what does it look like for built environments and businesses that surround us through service, excellence, and neighborly love to more visibly reflect God's plan for all people? We talked to Jimmy about ways Christ-following investors can direct capital into the marketplace and work towards establishing redemptive real estate. Let's listen in. All right. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman. And today I am joined by a fantastic guest, Jimmy Wright. Jimmy is the president of Launch Capital Partners in Louisville, Kentucky. And he knows a wealth about investing, particularly about the idea of built communities and redemptive real estate and everything in between. So please join me in welcoming Jimmy to the show. Jimmy, how are you? Good. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. How are you up in Kentucky today? Is everything uh, going well up there? Are you on the road? It's finally starting to break here. The weather is it's getting a little bit warmer. It did this to us last week. It does this. This time of year is rough here in Kentucky. You get really hopeful and you hit 70 and 80 degree days and then boom, you're back to 40s again. But Yeah, I feel it. I think we're all anxious to get into uh, spring and summer here. You know, Jimmy, as we just dive in, you know, I've gotten to know a little bit about your background, but just for the benefit of folks here, tell us a little bit 
about yourself. Where are you from? How did you get into investing? What was your path to this point? Yeah, so I was born and raised here in Louisville, Kentucky. Still live here in Louisville. My wife, Dana, and I have been married for 14 years. We have five kids in the house. They range from ages 11 down to five months old. Oh, wow. We're pretty busy at home. We just moved a little bit outside of Louisville to a little more rural community, which is fun, too. We have a bunch of dogs and cats and whatever the kids catch in the creek. And we moved out to a little country church. So it's a lot of fun. We're having a good time. That's fantastic. And how did you get interested in real estate? Was this where you kind of entered or were you interested in the faith aspects of this previous to getting into real estate? Yeah. I mean, this is really, it's really a story of God's providence all the way through because it's definitely not a planned path that I had. I'm really thankful for it and glad to be here, but it wasn't my plan at all. So we um, started this journey about 12 years ago when I started really considering integrating faith and work together before I just, I had the two separated and, you know, went to church and put on my work hat and went to work. But I went on a mission trip, had two pretty important points during this time. I went on a mission trip to Indonesia and helped some missionaries there do some work on water. And while I was there, I noticed that I couldn't help them with language. I couldn't help them with anything except I had project management experience and I was like, well, you could do this or that in your business and I think improve it. And I think you could get more production and more clean water to people. And the response that I got was, yeah, that's great. We don't really need business improvement here. We just need, um, and I'm like, well, what do you need? And it's, can you go back and just make money, <laughs> give the missions, <laughs> and, then, then, uh, and then, you know, we'll do the mission work. They said it in a very kind way, and they're, <laughs> they're kind people. <laughs> but, but, but that's what I took from it. And even talking to some pastors, it's like, well, you know, like make all you can and then give all yeah. you can which was just really, really unsatisfying (laughs) because I I didn't feel a call to vocational ministry, but I was serious about my faith and learning more and wanting to apply it in every way that I could. Yeah. And you know, what we hear commonly, Jimmy, around here is this separation of faith and work where people, you know, have work on one side and they think, I'll just make a lot of money and then do philanthropic activity for the things I want to support or the churches I want to give to you. And that that activity is over here. And really, I think there's an emerging consensus among folks that it's really the integration of those two things that's most powerful. You know, you mentioned your mentor talking you through that. What did that look like as you transitioned from the corporate world or started to evaluate your position in the corporate world to this idea of potentially starting a new venture like Launch Capital Partners? Man, Ross McGarry mentored me. And he was really great about, he's a former pastor, but also had worked some in the business world. So he was able to kind of bridge that divide. And one thing that he just did really well was be able to speak into your business. So he had a pastor's heart and he had a heart to love the Lord and love neighbor and see that worked out everywhere in life, but had some of the acumen and some of the backgrounds to be able to speak into broad categories in your work. This again was not planned, but I started into real estate by another guy that worked at the corporate America with me. And he said, basically like, why don't we get into some real estate? It'd be good for retirement. 
<laughs> that was the plan. That's how I got started into real estate. <laughs> and so this was entirely kind of a side hustle, so to speak, in modern terms at the yeah. beginning where you had a yeah. job in corporate America. It sounds like project management and other things. And this was you and a friend deciding real estate could be a really interesting path to secure retirement, to generate extra income. That's exactly what it was. So we listened to podcasts and learned real estate. And then uh, on the side, nights and weekends, we would go and buy these houses and rehab them and refurbish them and then put them in bank financing and put a tenant in them. And we just, we started cycling through that. And then at the same time, my co-founder of Launch with me, him and I, our families moved into the same neighborhood in Louisville. And that neighborhood was a historically refugee neighborhood, an immigrant oh, neighborhood. And really, Launch was born out of both of our desires to do outreach. So we were just trying to do community outreach and looked around and noticed that all the nations were around us. So I got on the board of a local nonprofit. We did backyard Bible clubs. We did in apartment complexes in the neighborhood. And then we also did homework help and some after school care for kids and just started working with and loving the refugee community. And out of that, Ben Hedrick is his name, Ben and I's relationship came what launches. And it came about through really serving the refugee community and being an advocate for them. And had that been a passion of yours forever? Or was this something that you kind of moved to the neighborhood for that reason? Or it just kind of happened as you coincidentally moved in? Like, where did that passion come from for you? We, we moved into the neighborhood because it was where you could get the most house for the money. Yep. So my wife taught Spanish. She was involved in missions and had a heart for the nations. And I did too as well. So we had that bent a little bit. But we didn't really get involved until we found ourselves in the middle of it. That's amazing. So you and Ben were building this business, flipping houses. How did that evolve from the two of you kind of rehabbing houses, putting in tenants to this idea of launch capital where you're starting to aggregate capital and it becomes more central to who you are? It's not just a side hustle anymore, but it becomes central to who you are. Yeah, great question. So we started... We were rehabbing the houses. We started working with resettlement agencies to place tenants. And we thought about a business model that could really cater to the immigrant, uh, immigrant community. And as we were developing that, we just continued to grow. And we got blessed it in several ways to where we were able to scale pretty quickly. We then brought on some private investors who came in and gave us financing. We then rehabbed and refinanced these properties out and managed them and scaled it that way. And then really the turning point was we got a few tenants in and saw just how well the ministry aspect was going. And I just decided that I want to do this full time. So I was saving up money for to launch out, so to speak, and go full time. And at the time, my company was going to get bought. So I had a severance package that supposedly was in line for me. And what ended up happening was it never came through. We never got bought. So, oh, wow. And in the meantime, my boss moved departments and my job was on the innovation side and wasn't core and the company was cutting costs at the time. So what ended up happening was I got let go. And rather than having six months of runway 
I got let go and they're like, your insurance ends tonight. And <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we just prayed at that point and we're thinking like, you know, what do we do? I want to pursue launch, but I have a growing family to provide for and didn't quite get my savings up to where I wanted to. So Dana and I just prayed and decided to just go for it. And when we did, literally, it was two weeks after we decided to go for it full time that some bigger investors came through, we're now partners, and then a portfolio of about 150 units that needed a big rehab. And this was in 2016, so exactly the time where there was a big refugee rush. Uh, all that came through at exactly the same time to where I could pay myself as a general contractor and have a job and get going. So it's, yeah, it's really amazing how it all came through. It's amazing how providential that process is sometimes. You know, we've heard versions of this. I have a version of this myself where a trying situation turns into the thing that helps you to catalyze, to move into something that really is a calling for you and that ignites you. And at the time it can feel hard, but I think looking back, you often see the providence in that and see the word you're getting from God about what you're intended to be doing. We never would have been able to buy that property. And, and I may never have been able to even go full time if had that not happened. And talk to us about, so this started as a thing where it sounds like you were doing standard real estate, buy a house for a good price, rehab it, get a tenant in. Launch has really uh, transitioned into something that's deeply spiritually integrated or that incorporates a lot of meaning and value into what it's doing with communities. How did that arise? It sounds like partially organically. And what does that look like now? For many of our listeners, this idea of redemptive real estate or communities is new. So talk to us about what that looks like for y'all and how that came about. Yeah. So we had planned to do it from the beginning. We wanted spiritual impact baked into what we did. So traditional property management tends to automate tends to distance itself from the tenant, all in the name of efficiencies. So what we were doing is the opposite of that. So we went backwards in time and hired resident managers. So we have one resident manager on site for every 50 units that we own. Oh, interesting. We have, we have 1,400 units right now. So these families live on site and they're like the old building supers. So if a tenant needs anything, they have a door to knock on, which is really helpful with language and cross-cultural dynamics. So they come to the door. These are often families that are connected to local churches. Some of them have been overseas. Some of them want to go overseas. We have many that are now overseas. And they, yeah, they just care for the tenant. And they can't care for 50 other families, like one family can't, you know, obviously care for 50 others. So the nonprofit that we initially volunteered with, we now have a deep connection to, and we've helped them to expand out to work with 50 different churches here in Louisville. So we have volunteers come in and they're connected to our resident managers and they deal with some of the overflow of needs that come through. So the nonprofit will do homework help. They have a ladies tea they have a lot of after-school care, some ESL programs and different programs on site. And since we don't need the office space because we have resident managers, we use that office space as community centers that the churches 
do programs out of. So that's a cool model. You basically set up an aligned capital partner or partners with a nonprofit that's dedicated to impact in the community with a residential model and people on site who are dedicated to the health and well-being of the residents. And it's at the center of those things that you can really enable this model that's meaningfully different than others that you'd find in these communities, I imagine. It is. Yeah. It's highly relational, highly impactful, and really focuses a lot around building the community. Was there ever a concern? You know, I can imagine that one of the reasons people have automated is cost, right? Is making the financial model work. How did you think about the business model underlying this impactful group that you've set up? And were you ultimately able to reconcile the idea that this could actually be a better investment as well as the right thing to do? Yeah. So normally on apartment complexes of the size that we buy, there's a leasing agent on site and a property manager on site. And what we've done, the math kind of works out to where if you divide the leasing agent out per 50 units, then that pays for the resident managers. And then the rest of the property management staff, we have a central back office and we have centralized maintenance. So the resident managers aren't typically doing maintenance activities. They're doing leasing and like property management is what I would call it. So economically, it's neutral on the cost side. But as far as the model, typically our tenants stay about twice as long as national average. So the turnover rate is you know, about 45%. We're at about 22% on our stabilized property. Wow. So part of that is the community development and the word of mouth advertising that happens. So once you go into a community and start to improve it, word travels and then good tenants refer other good tenants and then you get kind of a virtuous cycle there. So we've shared a lot of meals together. We've shared stories with each other of different heartaches. We've walked together through life. We have Yusuf, who's the Syrian, who uh, him and his family are still um, connected closely with. And he makes falafel every Monday. And it's the best falafel around. <laughs> and uh, so you can go over it every Monday. And Yusuf will be out there frying his falafel. We have Elizabeth from the Congo who a resident manager family invested very deeply with. She's now a member at our church. So we see her and care for her regularly. There are so many stories of the resident managers stepping into people's lives in really extraordinary ways. Like we have Hunter, for example, is a resident manager in an apartment complex that's primarily Cubans. And an elderly Cuban gentleman who he built relationship with ended up being taken to the hospital and was very, very serious for him. And so he called for his property manager to come like mm-hmm. sit on his deathbed. <laughs> and he wants to see his property manager who's he's known for several months. And it's just a beautiful example of these people living out their calling. That's awesome. And it's such a great representation of the church as well. You know, the real church, the global church, the body of Christ, where it is every single person on this planet, you know, from different backgrounds with different experiences. And I think it's so easy living in any community to get in a bubble of your community, right? Here in my little part of Atlanta or in your little part of Kentucky. And yet, because you're able to live in these diverse communities with people relocating, dislocated from their places of origin, 
and united only in this common experience or hopefully in their dedication to faith that you get such a cross-section of the world, right? And of what the body of Christ can look like. How have your kids responded to that? I can imagine it's been an amazing experience. Yeah, they've loved it. My oldest is 12. So uh, it's 12 down to five months. I don't think they quite appreciate it as much as they will, I think, in the future. But yeah, they have friends from many different cultures and hear different languages all the time and are asking their friends questions about their home, where they're from. And yeah, they love it. And as parents, we're really glad to give them that experience and exposure that normally you pay thousands of dollars for (laughs) to go overseas. But, you know, the nations are coming here and we as a church have to learn how to receive them. That's awesome. As I think through what you're describing, I also think, wow, you're just so invested in these communities. You have such a dedication to them. At the same time, you're trying to build a business, right? A commercially viable business. Do you find there's ever a tension there between the kind of care that you have for these communities and making this business economically sustainable and successful? Yeah, sometimes there is a tension. We have been really fortunate to be able to find property that we can preserve affordability and also have some quality to the housing. And we have a dedicated maintenance staff that's really experienced and goes above and beyond to give tenants a a good quality property. There are, and we try to have, we have as much grace as we can. There's tension sometimes with a tenant doesn't pay, then, you know, there's creates conflict and difficulty. Fortunately, they're actually the refugees and immigrants are really committed to paying rent. Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating that I would have thought that refugee communities would actually have greater problems as tenants with delinquency, with financial troubles, with stability. And yet part of your model seems to be that those folks are actually really great tenants, that they're thoughtful, that they pay on time, that's stable. Talk more about that. What makes these communities such good tenants and how does that feed into the model? Yeah, so the model works great with immigrants and refugees because because what they're missing is that cross-cultural piece. And a lot of times there's misunderstandings and inabilities to communicate that cause tensions. And it's not a lack of willingness to pay. I mean, you think about these people have come over from many of them have lived in tents or like horrid conditions. And the first thing they're going to pay is, is the roof over their head. They're really committed and uh, family oriented. So they pay well. They also are great workers by and large. So Homeland Security does a lot of checks. There's no drug issues. They generally get employed here in Louisville. The market is like the UPS is a big hub here. So there's a lot of warehouse jobs that pay pretty well, that translate to affordable living conditions here in Louisville. So it works well in this market. Also, they're just generally overlooked because they come over with no credit history, no job, and then they're putting their application down in a market that's already short, you know, millions of of homes now at this point. So they're constantly beat out on paper. That's fascinating because it is is this overlooked group for exactly the reasons you mentioned. They don't fit neatly within the categories that we typically have for renters with a credit history, et cetera. And yet all of the intrinsic qualities that would make them great partners as tenants in a community 
are there, right? And they understand what it means to be in a more stable and safe environment and how valuable that is. You know, as people are listening, they're probably wondering, A, how they could potentially get involved with the work that you're doing at launch, or B, how they might serve immigrant communities or refugee communities in their own part of the world, wherever that might be. They're here in Atlanta, for example, or off in other cities. You know, if someone were asking those questions, what would you say to them about ways in which they can support your efforts or potentially even stand up their own? Yeah, our effort, we're constantly raising funds. So we're always raising a new fund. We also are looking for like-minded property management. So that's as we're getting ready to raise a large fund. And we're looking to different cities for property management help because it's difficult to export property management. It's a hard Mm -hmm. business to take across the country. So we're looking for that. Yeah, I would just say that there's many cities that have thriving refugee ministries that are connected to churches. We're not special and unique in that way. Our innovation is tying all these things together. So feel free to reach out to me. I've spoken to many of them, and I'm happy to connect you to different ministries. That's awesome. What cities are you moving into, Jimmy? Well, we're looking at Dallas right now. We're looking at Raleigh, North Carolina, the Triangle area, actually, the and also where the fund will, will take on a, probably another Midwestern city or two, like the Midwest. Uh, it's a great place for people to settle. And it's where a lot of people go for secondary migration. So they land somewhere and then realize that they can't afford to live there or they sort of resort and talk to each other. And, and the Midwest is growing a lot. That's awesome. Good luck in that expansion. I want to end with a couple of questions. You know, we always end, and I'll circle back to this in a moment, with what you're learning from scripture right now, or what God is teaching you right now that might be relevant to our audience. Before we get to that, though, I would love to know, is there anything you feel you've learned in working with either a particular refugee that you all are serving or with these communities that you would want to share with others that you think could be valuable? Yeah, I've learned to be less... Uh, ethnocentric. I've learned that I felt like my world and my culture was sort of the center of the map. And in working with refugees and immigrants and learning how they do things and how they approach things, how they just generally think differently, has really opened my mind and, and a lot of the people here at Launch to new ways of thinking and really broadened our perspective. It's been a real joy to work with them. And I think we get as much as we've given in a lot of different ways. Yeah, one of the lessons I feel like I come back with every time I travel and spend place in a somewhere that's culturally different than my own is just how much there is to learn from different ways of thinking, how different people operate <laughs> around the world, and how ours isn't the only way, right? And in fact, there are ways, other places in the world and other communities that are better that we could learn from and being surrounded by that every day in this melting pot of these refugee and immigrant communities has to be a really powerful experience. I'm sure as we talked about, it leads to some tension sometimes, but it's also a really powerful experience. Many of the warm cultures I've learned a lot from, like, so our tenants are super hospitable and put me and my family to shame sometimes (laughs) and how welcoming and open and giving they are and how, you know, there's never a closed door and, I think that we could learn in the States a lot from that. And it's a lot of this idea of welcoming the strangers among us. When you've been a stranger 
it's probably a lot easier to kind of empathize with a stranger. And that experience that they're going through must be so powerful about being disconnected from their communities and having to form a new community and must forever change the way in which you work with others and empathize with others. So Jimmy, I wanna conclude with something we ask everyone, which is just a lesson you're learning in scripture right now or that you feel that God is teaching you that you'd wanna share with everyone here. Yeah, I've thought of two quick things. So my wife and I have been praying and thinking about loving our neighbor and who is our neighbor. And as we've been reading scripture and praying, it's been on our hearts to care for widows, orphans, materially poor, and continue to care for the sojourner. We call them the womps, jokingly. But that's throughout the Bible. You're never going to go wrong caring for those groups. So we've been praying and thinking through that. And then also I've been reading Ecclesiastes recently and kind of thinking about the concept of beginning with the end in mind. So we've been thinking through both the lens of the widows and orphans and the materially poor and sojourner, and what do we want the end to look like in life and working backwards? Because there's so much that is so distracting in life that I've come to think about a lot of distractions recently. And our world is just full of distractions. And I think if we're not super intentional about where we're going, and I think the book of Ecclesiastes really hones in yeah. <laughs> on that with a fine point. And then if we focus on where we're going and keep our eyes on Christ and our eyes on the target, then we're able to eliminate some of those distractions. Jimmy, this was an amazing story. You've mentioned it a few times, but Jesus obviously told us the two greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And it's hard for me to think of a better way to do that than building communities like you're building that reflect the love of God and that serve the people who are most important to him and whom he loves and creates a community amongst these people who probably wouldn't have thought of themselves as neighbors, but now are, and they're neighbors with you. And I just think it's really powerful what y'all are doing through Launch Capital and really, really grateful for the work and the service that you're doing there. So thank you for joining us today and telling us about it. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 